Good morning, folks. We're continuing in John's Gospel, and we're looking at John chapter 6 today, verses 22 to 58, and at least we'll have a little look at some of these verses. So if you have your Bible there, you may want to follow along. It speaks of Jesus, the bread of life. And we all know what bread is, don't we? It's a combination of flour and water and yeast, um, a leavening agent, uh, mixed together and baked. But if you look up a dictionary, the word bread also means the food that one needs to live. The food that one needs to live. And Jesus is the bread of life. Uh, just three words I have this morning. One is motives. And what is a motive? A motive is a reason for doing something, especially one that is hidden or not known. So, um, he, uh, sorry, John chapter 6. Uh, we looked last week at the, um, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water. And let's pick it up in John chapter 6 and verse 22. The next day the crowd stood on the other side of the sea and they saw that there was no one, no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias, uh, as uh, near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Um, Tiberias is on the left side uh, of the Dead Sea. It's about halfway down, whereas Capernaum is up towards the top. On, the, on that side as well. And we, when we visited Israel, if you've visited there, you may have been taken to the place where they believe the feeding of the 5,000 took place. It's on a fairly steep, not steep, but a hill going down to the lake. So, verse 24, When the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? When did you get here? Maybe we would have asked that same question. But Jesus knew the motives of their heart. Motive is the reason for doing something. And uh, Jesus said, um, Truly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. In other words, you sought me for what you could get from me. Uh, you simply wanted to get a free meal. He, he just cut right through things and right down to the very heart. So motives are very, very important. Um, I've been to Cambodia a couple of times and talking with a missionary there who's invested heavily in that country. He speaks the Khmer language fluently without any accent. He's married a Khmer woman. He's got uh, three adoptive Khmer children. Um, he's translated the New Testament into, um, into the Khmer language. He's um, the modern translation. Uh, and he said to me, many people, want, many Christians want to be pastors. He said, if you ask so many Christians, why, what do you want to do in the future? I want to be a pastor. Well, that's, that's honorable, isn't it? But he said, the reason why so many say I want to be a pastor is because they're going to be funded, say, from America through the mission they're working with. And they'll get so many dollars a month. So what is the motive for wanting to be a pastor? 
Sounds a good thing. And then he also mentioned to me that uh, sometimes there's not a lot of loyalty, although I think there is in his work, there's not a lot of loyalty from one mission to another. And if we're working with one mission, we could quickly uh, switch to another mission. Why? Because they will offer more money. Uh, instead of uh, $30 a month, it'll be $50 a month. And people are quick to change allegiance because of the money. So what's the motivation? What's the motivation of the missionaries? Because some of them can say, well, we have so many workers under our, our care, so many pastors we're providing for, so many orphans we are caring for, and you hear the word orphan, and people in America, uh, their hearts are touched, they want to give because they're caring for homeless children. What's the motivation for the things that we do? And I'm just thinking again of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there's coming a day when, as believers, we will stand before Jesus to give an account of our lives. We don't stand before the great white throne of judgment. Uh, when we stand before Jesus, it's not to decide whether we're going to heaven or hell. It's simply to receive reward or lack of reward. And I believe at least three of the factors involved in that day of judgment will be motives, obedience and power. In other words, what was the motivation for why we did this or we did that? Um, were we walking in obedience to what the Lord required of us? Uh, what's the source of the power? Was it simply our own strength that we served him or we were relying upon uh, and calling upon the, the power of the Holy Spirit to help us? This missionary also said to me when we were there one visit, uh, someone had said to him, look at the, this webpage. And would you believe? I, mean, I find it hard to believe. But he was a U.S. missionary. On his webpage, he had pictures of pastors, full-time workers, of the orphans, of buildings, everything else, claiming it to be his own in order to raise money. And he said, these are my pastors. These are my workers. These are the ones that we care for. And every month from California, a whole... Um, a container of, of rice is sent uh, to this man to help feed the orphans from a church that we have a link with in California. I tell you, are we not living in the light of accountability as believers? How can people even consider to do such a thing? Um, what's the motivation? What's the motivation? So these folks were running to see Jesus or sailing to see Jesus and he just saw right to the heart, uh, you're just seeking me because of, you had your belly fed the other day. Another word is priorities. Let's turn to Luke 12 for a moment. Luke 12. What are our priorities? What were the priorities of those people that so many of them that went to be with Jesus? Luke chapter 12, 13 to 21. Well, actually, verse 15 says, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning with himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? I'm going to build bigger barns, larger ones, and so on. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your soul is required of you, 
and now he will own what you have prepared. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Verse 20, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. Um, I'm using the NASV version, and uh, I, uh, we have a number of Bibles of that, but one of them has the literal meanings in the margin. And it says of these words, um, your soul is required of you, literally means this night, or they are demanding your soul from you. They are demanding your soul from you. That's the literal rendering of those words, but in my translation it just simply says, your soul is required of you. Who are the they mentioned in this passage? And in order to discover that, we need to turn to um, the book of Revelation, chapter 6. The book of Revelation, chapter 6, as we consider priorities, because you'll agree with me that most people are living purely for this temporal world, not laying up treasure in heaven, living purely for time alone. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 7 and 8. The opening of the seals. When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked and behold an ashen horse, a sickly pale horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, and with pestilence, and by the wild beasts of the earth. So here were two spiritual beings, angels, the angel of death and the angel of Hades. This night they are demanding your soul from you. The angel of death has power over men's bodies, whereas the angel of Hades has power over men's souls. So when death has done its work, then Hades then takes that soul to the place called Hades, or Sheol in the Hebrew, the place of the departed spirits. Now, this, of course, was before Jesus came, died, and rose again. But it's still the same today for those who don't know Jesus. For us as believers, it's absent from the body and present with the Lord, but for the unbeliever, there is the angel of Hades having power over men's soul to take them to the place of Hades until the day of resurrection and, and, and judgment. So, back to... John chapter 6. In the light of these things, motivation, priorities, oh, would pay to look at number 6, wouldn't it, rather than chapter 5. Makes a big difference. Verse 28, they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? So here they are focusing on the natural realm. Jesus said, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. But what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. But they're not kind of hearing what he's saying. They're back to the natural again. What, when, what then do you do for a sign, 
so that we may see and believe you. What works do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. They had a wrong focus. They were not understanding the things that Jesus was saying. Just moving on here. Jesus spoke, uh, verse 32, It is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is this that which is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, Oh, always give us this bread, Lord. And then verse thirty five, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus is talking about eternal matters. Their focus was so much on the temporal. So verse 41, they were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Now we think of the manna having come down in the wilderness. God provided for his people through the manna and then through the quails. But they were grumbling. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? They're trying to understand spiritual realities with natural reasoning. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and yet they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Oh, now, that was kind of stirring up a few things, as it does even to this day. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Wow. 
And of course there was offence. And uh, there were many that stopped following Jesus because of what he was saying. But just keep in mind verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. The next word I want to bring to you is misunderstandings. Misunderstandings. When Jesus spoke about eating his flesh, drinking his blood, there was great offence that took place. Perhaps I should move on now to a word that we don't use very often or consider in Protestant circles. Uh, by the word Protestant, can you see a word Protestant? The first is a word there, protest, protest. Transubstantiation. It's the Latin word, comes from the Latin word transubstantiatio, or the Greek, I don't speak Greek, but Greek, metosiosis. According to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, the change of substance or essence by which the bread and wine offered in the sacrifice of the sacrament of the Eucharist during the Mass become in reality the body and blood of Christ. So the Roman Catholic position on this passage in the words of Jesus Roman Catholics believe that the bread and wine that is offered is the actual body and blood of Christ and another form of sacrifice. They believe that although that bread and wine physically remain the same, it is transformed beyond human comprehension into the body, blood, soul and divinity of Jesus. Whereas the Protestant position generally held is this, Protestants believe that Jesus made his sacrifice on the cross and simply followed the tradition of the sacrament in memory of the event, recalling its symbolic importance in the life of Jesus. So for the Catholic mindset, it's the actual body and blood of Jesus, whereas in the Protestant mindset, it's a symbol of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And a symbol is something that stands or represents uh, for something else. Um, what can we say? John chapter 3. Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, a religious leader, a Pharisee, responded with a natural mindset. How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Can he do that? So when Jesus talked about being born again, the mind of Nicodemus, this religious man, uh, was trying to work things out naturally. Uh, how can a person enter his mother's womb again and be born? But verse 6 of John 3, Jesus said, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Jesus was speaking about a spiritual birth. But here was Nicodemus, a religious man, trying to understand what Jesus was saying with natural understanding. I remember the night I gave my life to Jesus in a Youth for Christ rally many years ago, decades ago now, and um, something happened. I prayed a simple prayer from my heart while the evangelist was still speaking well before the altar call was given. And I just lifted my heart to God and I said, Oh God, please forgive me all of my sins. 
Jesus, take over my life. It's yours. It was a prayer that came from the heart. And the moment I prayed that prayer, I suddenly felt clean on the inside. I felt a burden lift off me. It was like a light was switched on on the inside. I just knew I had passed out of death to life. I just knew I had received the gift of eternal life. And I've never doubted that for one moment over all of these decades. Then I went home and I had a Bible which I could never understand. And I was encouraged. Someone that night said, start reading from John's Gospel. So I began to read John chapter 1, 2, 3. And when I came to John 3, this passage about Jesus saying, you must be born again. And I'm saying, wow, that must have happened to me tonight. That's why I'm feeling different on the inside. Something's happened on the inside. There's been a transformation that's taken place on the inside. I've been born again. So suddenly I had scriptures to, 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 to you know, give me a foundation for what had happened in my heart when I called upon the Lord. So when Jesus talked to Nicodemus about being born again, he wasn't talking about a natural birth. He was talking about something that was spiritual. Uh, for instance, Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Another passage. In fact, there are many things that we say. We've been singing this morning. Uh, he roars like a lion. Uh, did Jesus literally roar like a lion? Uh, he bled as a lamb. Did he literally bleed as a lamb? I mean, I've slaughtered sheep in the past. You just take a sharp knife and it's all over and just, just in a moment. Uh, did Jesus bleed like a lamb? Now, these are words that we use to describe something, uh, symbols. So in Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believed to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Well, these are hyperboles. Uh, did Jesus... Does he require of us to literally pluck out an eye or cut off a foot or a hand? Of course not. None of us, I'm sure, would take it that way. What's that? Oh, unless you had cancer. Okay, okay. <laughs> but Jesus was using um, a herbally here, a hy hyperbole. Exaggerated statements or claims not meant to be taken literally. Luke chapter 10, verse 19. Jesus said to his disciples, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Now, was Jesus saying, find all the scorpions you can and tread on them? Find all the snakes and tread on them? No, no, no. He was talking about the demonic realm. Uh, this was just an imagery that he was using, which the disciples understood. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Have any of us been literally crucified? Of course not. 
You can go on online, YouTube, and uh, put in something like the Philippines, Easter, the Philippines, crucifixion. And every year in the Philippines, which is a strongly Roman Catholic nation, there are people who are literally crucified. And uh, you'll see them on crosses with nails through their hands. And they're just showing God how much they uh, appreciate him, how dedicated they are to him. Well, when we say, I have been crucified with Christ, we're not thinking I've got to be literally, physically crucified. We understand what these words mean. Um, Luke chapter 13, the Pharisees approached Jesus and said, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said, You tell that fox. <laughs> you tell that fox. Well, um, was Herod a fox? Did he have pointed ears and a bushy tail? Of course not. But we know that there are characteristics we think of, of being as cunning as a fox or as sly as a fox. Um, Revelation chapter 5 talks about no one worthy to open the book and its seven seals. Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so to open the book and its seven seals. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah. Did Jesus take on the form of a lion? And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. So when the eyes were turned to the throne to see the lion, there was a lamb. But was there a literal lamb with, you know, white, curly? No, no, not at all. But we all know the symbolism of the lion and the symbolism of the lamb. The lamb characteristics are like meekness, quiet, gentle, submissive, innocent. The characteristics of a lion are strength and courage and royalty and stateliness, and we think of the king of the jungle, the king of the beasts. Let me just um, make some comments about this because this can be a tricky subject, can't it? Talking about transubstantiation and the, the wafer or the, the bread literally becoming literally the body of Jesus and the wine literally becoming the blood of Christ. Under the rule of King Henry VIII in England, even though he broke with the Pope, he kept many essentials of the Catholic doctrine, including transubstantiation. This was enshrined in the six articles of 1539 and the death penalty specifically prescribed for any who denied transubstantiation. Ooh, wow, wow. Uh, this was changed under Elizabeth I in the 39 articles of 1563. The Church of England declared transubstantiation or the change of the substance of bread and wine in the supper of the Lord cannot be proved by holy writ, but is repugnant to the plain words of Scripture, overthroweth the nature of a sacrament and hath given occasion to many superstitions and made mass illegal. And then for a century and a half, 1672 to 1828, transubstantiation had an important role in a negative way in British political and social life. Under the Test Act, the holding of any public office was made conditional upon explicitly adjuring transubstantiation. Any aspirant um, 
to public office had to repeat the formula set out by the law. So for myself, I, uh, Graham Powell, do declare that I do believe that there is not any transubstantiation in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper or the elements of the bread and wine or at or after the consecration thereof by any person whatsoever. So, 150 years, you couldn't have a public office in England if you believed in transubstantiation. So, has, have there been a few conflicts over the years to do with the subject? Uh, the way that people think? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I think you're aware of this. Let me just um, conclude by just talking about the exchange of the cross, and I've spoken on this before in more detail, but just as Protestants, we look back 2,000 years to what Jesus accomplished, what he fulfilled. On the cross, he cried out with a triumphant cry, It is finished. It is completely complete. It is perfectly perfected. What Jesus had come to do had been fully accomplished. And Hebrews says that Jesus died once for all. He does not need to be offered again and again and again, day after day after day. He sacrificed. He was given as a sacrifice once. And that sacrifice was so perfect, it never needed to be repeated ever again. So as Protestants, we look back 2,000 years, and here are just eight points that are so good. Um, the exchange of the cross. The exchange of the cross. Jesus was punished so that we could be forgiven. Isn't that wonderful? We don't have to punish ourselves. I could go into this as, well, as Protestants we can punish ourselves. As Catholics we can punish ourselves. Even being nailed to a cross, literally. Jesus was punished so that we could be forgiven. Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5. Jesus was made sin with our sinfulness so that we could be made righteous with his righteousness. Isaiah 53 verse 10, Romans 5, 12 to 19. Jesus was without sin, but he became our sin offering. And he took upon himself our sin and he dealt with the power of sin uh, through his sacrifice. Thirdly, Jesus died our death so that we could receive his life. Hebrews 2 verse 9, he tasted death for everyone. He died so that we can live. Fourthly, Jesus was wounded so that we could be healed. Matthew 8, 16, 1 Peter 2, 4. And uh, as I mentioned before, in our most of our English translations, back to Isaiah 53, we see the words that Jesus bore our griefs and our sorrows. The word griefs, if you look up your concordance, means malady, sickness, disease. On the cross, Jesus took our sicknesses, our diseases. He bore them and he carried them away. Just as he took our sorrows, he bore them and carried them away. Just as, as he took our iniquities, he bore them and carried them away. Sadly, that truth is veiled in our English translations. But in Scandinavian translations, the Lutheran translations, it's very clear Jesus, uh, he took our diseases, he took our sicknesses. Fifthly, Jesus bore our shame so that we could share his glory. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Jesus bore our shame. We see pictures of Jesus, usually with... Uh, a loincloth or something on, 
But in, in reality, Jesus was naked. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was without even the Father turned his back upon him. And Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus was willing to do that. He took the shame so that we could share the honor and the glory. Sixthly, Jesus endured our rejection so that we could have his acceptance with the Father. Matthew 27, 43 to 50, 51. Jesus, as he identified with us in our sinfulness, caused the Father to turn his back upon him, and that's why he cried out in agony, Why have you forsaken me? Seventhly, Jesus bore our sorrow so that we could experience his joy. Isaiah 53, verse 3. Jesus endured our poverty so that we could share his abundance. Galatians chapter 3, 13 and 14. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. We look back as Protestants 2,000 years to what Jesus did for us through his sacrifice, his willing sacrifice for us. And we celebrate as we partake of the, the bread and the cup, we celebrate what Jesus did for us. Whereas the Catholic positions I've mentioned, they believe that the wafer, the wine, literally turned into the, the flesh of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He is the source of our sustenance. And uh, just look back to the book of Numbers. There was a time when judgment came upon Israel because they were grumbling and complaining against the Lord. And God sent fiery serpents amongst the people and people were being bitten and people were dying. And Moses called out to God and God gave him the remedy, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, lift it up, and those that look will live. And as that was done, the people who were dying, as they looked to that serpent on the pole, they were healed. And Jesus said of himself, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, I'm going to be lifted up, that all who look to me, all who believe in me, trust in me, will have eternal life. Uh, by faith, by faith, by faith, we look back. We're saved not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, we're saved by the grace of God through faith let's pray heavenly father we thank you for the bread that came down from heaven living bread living water oh we thank you for all that jesus uh, speaks of he is the way he is the truth he is the life and thank you we are partaking by faith day by day by day of his provision for us, the one that came down from heaven, the true bread, and we look back to the cross and we receive by faith and we live in the light of that cross, but we also live in the light of the open tomb. Jesus died but rose again and we just thank you for his resurrection power working in our lives and we partake of these wonderful provisions by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Thank you, Father, for Jesus, the bread of life. Thank you for Jesus, the resurrection and the life. Thank you for Jesus, who is the Alpha and the Omega. Oh, we give you praise, we give you praise, we give you praise for Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Father. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.